Today's reading is from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, let he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. We're starting a new series this morning, so I want to give you maybe like a four or five minute overview of what we're going to be doing in the month of February and kind of just set the pace for you. So at the very beginning of his earthly ministry, when he kind of sprung on the scene, Jesus kind of began this public ministry with these words. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so he didn't say Believe in me and you get to go to this kingdom when you die. He didn't say the kingdom will come at some distant future unknown point. He said it's here because I the king am here. Later in his ministry in his most probably famous sermon as Jesus was teaching his disciples and us how to pray. Part of that prayer leads off father our father and then we pray this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I know some of you pray that prayer, the Lord's Prayer as it's often called. I want to make that a little bit more specific and a little bit more concrete that when we're praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I often substitute, Lord, in Denver as it is in heaven or at the corner of Broadway and Park Avenue as it is in heaven. You can substitute a number of things to make this concrete and functional in your life. Lord, in my marriage, in my family, in my friendships, in my job, in my neighborhood, as it is in heaven. Okay, so Jesus is introducing this massive concept of the kingdom of God, which is bigger, as Richard just said, than the church. It is everything and it's everyone over which Jesus rules But it's important to note that in the middle of talking about the kingdom, Jesus also promises to work very directly, very specifically through his church. I'll put it like this. The way I think about the church in kingdom terms, and that's what this series is going to be, is it's both a reflection of and an outpost of the kingdom of God. And I think those two images are helpful to remember What is it that we're doing here on earth, both as individual Christians, but especially as we gather and live on mission? So I said it's a reflection of the kingdom of God. And and what I mean is, you know when you look in a mirror and you see a reflection. Well, that reflection, technically speaking, is not you. It is an image. It's a reflection of you, right? And it's a mirror image. It's actually backward, if you think about it. Everything is reversed. Well, in the same way, 
even the church, let alone our culture at large, cannot simply look into heaven and experience, okay, now I understand the character of God. I understand the goodness of God. I understand the works of God. But kind of like a periscope, they should be able to look at the church and see a mirror, see a reflection. And people should interact with the church in such a way that they're like, I know what Jesus prioritizes because I can see those priorities reflected in the local church. So that's the idea of reflection. Outpost, which may not be as familiar to you, often is used in military terms as like a small camp or a security detachment that's like out away from the main force. Now they're a a subset of the main force, but they're out there and they're doing reconnaissance and they're watching out to protect against the surprise attack. And that's often called an outpost or more generally, The Cambridge Dictionary says an outpost is a place, especially a small group of buildings or a town that represents the authority or the business interests of a government or company that is far away. You know, so Apple's headquarters may be in like Cupertino, California, somewhere out there in the Bay Area, but they have these outposts all around the world in different cities, in different malls. And those little places are supposed to be a reflection of the authority and the business interest of the, the main home company. And I think that kind of nails this relationship between the local church and the eternal kingdom of God. And I put it to you this way if you're taking notes. The local church exists to represent the authority and the priorities of the kingdom of God on earth. How do I know something about the authority of King Jesus? How do I know something about the priorities? Well, someone should be able to walk into the local church, begin building a couple of relationships, simply observe the way the church gathers in worship, on mission, for discipleship or formation, and just experience some of that and say, oh, I get it. I see in this group of people, as diverse as they are, as different as they are from one another, I understand something of the priorities, the character, the goodness of God. So over the month of February, we're going to do this four-part survey. Number one, the king of the kingdom today. And then next week, Miguel will come and speak on the message of the kingdom. And then the pattern of the kingdom. And then finally, the priority of the kingdom. So I said this morning is the king of the kingdom. And this is important because in order to have a kingdom, as opposed to just a nation, a nation may have presidents or a cabinet or something like that, but a kingdom has a king. And you know how this has worked for thousands of years of human history, right? So here's a three-step process for all the kingdoms of the world, essentially. Step one is someone with power or charisma or kind of like the it factor gathers an army and attacks another people group or another kingdom and a bunch of people die on both sides and then the victor rules over both people groups. Well, now step two, that king needs a lot of money for his palaces and his programs and his agenda and so he enslaves some people and he taxes other people, and you see the king with all the niceties that money can afford, enjoying this lifestyle that is incredibly disparate from the average person who lives in his kingdom. There's an incredible gap. Other people are living as, they're called subjects, in abject poverty many times. But that's what kings do. He doesn't share their experience. And then the king has a son 
who becomes king, who has a son who becomes king, who has a son who becomes king. And they all have the same last name until step one repeats itself that somebody else from the outside comes in, attacks them, beats them, and then now he's king, okay? So if I were to summarize all the kingdoms of the world, you see a lot of nepotism, a lot of oppression, a lot of destruction, a lot of disparity of wealth and experience, and a lot of death, and then the cycle repeats. And my first point, the promise of the king is this, that in the midst of this hideous cycle of humanity, of kingdoms attacking kingdoms and people killing and ruling people and subjecting them to some form of slavery or another, in the midst of all this, God sends prophets to his people and to the world and says, one day I'm going to send a different kind of king, a fundamentally, qualitatively different kind of king, which we just read about in Psalm chapter 2. That all of the other kings of the world derive their authority, their right to power from this one king. So as you thumb through the pages of the Old Testament, which if you're new to the Bible, it's just the first 39 books of the Bible, which were written before the times of Jesus. There are dozens and dozens of what we call messianic prophecies that are saying when this king is going to be born, where this king is going to be born, how this king is going to live, even how this king is going to die and what he's going to be like, and what he's going to do for people. And it's no exaggeration to say that the, the central longing and hope of the old covenant people of God is this Messiah, this person will come, and he will liberate us, and he will rule over us, and life will never get any better or be any better than when this Messiah reigns. So just a word about Messiah. If you're reading through your Old Testament, you're like, I don't see the word Messiah what you'll often see is the word anointed or the words anointed one because that literally translates in the Hebrew this word Messiah or Mashiach that this is the translation of those words because back in those days to coronate a king, they literally poured oil like seasoned with herbs and spices. They poured oil over this person's head and just let it run down their body and this was the coronation of a king. And God's saying, I'm gonna send my own anointed. What authority does he have? Not just oil poured over his head, but he will have the very character, the very personage of God eternal. This is who he'll be, okay? So the promise of the king. Well, after nearly 400 years of prophetic silence, so God is speaking through all these prophets and he's sending more prophets and more prophets and there's captivities and all this bad stuff's happening. And then all of a sudden, God's not saying anything new, and that goes on for generation after generation after generation for 400 years. And suddenly, after all these centuries of silence, during the reign of the Roman ruler Caesar Augustus, an angel Gabriel appears to a virgin Mary and says this. This is Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 30. He says, You have found favor with God, Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give to him, catch this, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So get this. He's saying, Mary, this virgin, is going to conceive by the Holy Spirit who's been the, this, the savior king who's been promised for more than a thousand years, but has not come. 
And he says, this is no ordinary king because this king comes from eternity and this king is for eternity. His kingdom never had a beginning and it's never going to have an ending. And shortly after that, Mary's found with child before she comes together with Joseph. And if you don't know the story, if you're like, wait, if God is sending his forever king, like this is going to be the biggest baby shower, right? And birthday in the history of forever. And in one sense, you're right, because on the night that this baby was born, God does kind of pull out all the stops and an angel appears in the dark of the night sky outside Bethlehem and he makes this announcement and says, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the peoples, meaning not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. By the way, latch on to that word Christ, because if you're new to Christianity, you may be like, so Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name, right? Well, not exactly. Christ is his role. It's his title. And it is, it is literally the same word as the Old Testament Hebrew word Messiah. Christos in the Greek, Christ, means the same thing as Messiah. It's the anointed one. It is the king, okay? So there's an announcement of this king, a savior king born in the city of David, just like the prophecy said that he would be born. And this is point two, the birth of a king. But here's the thing, the next lines of Luke 2, and many of you are probably familiar with what we think of as the Christmas story. These lines are very startling because God's pulled out all the stops and there's this host joining the one angel in heaven and they're singing in this choir and there's fear and they're shaking and these shepherds are running. And then you're like, wait, why is it, if you know know the culture, like why is it shepherds who are literally outcasts? They're unclean because their job that was kind of 24 seven kept them from going through these rituals of cleansing to appear in the temple for worship. So everyone else from the religious leaders to just the common man and the common woman would look down on shepherds and say, "Eh, it's kind of a marginalized, kind of a yucky group. Like we rely on them for all our sacrifices, but they really have no use besides that. But this is who God is making an announcement to. And so they're on their way. Okay, we'll follow God. Where are we going? Oh, a manger, which is literally like a feed trough for cattle because on this night, the king of kings is born in a stable or a cave with animals because no one made room for them. And so just like that, this king, Jesus, is a paradox. His life is an enigma. It's a mystery where the things that are going on, you're like, ah, I expected that, but I didn't expect that. And even King Herod, a few months later, or maybe even up to a year later, recognizes the king of the Jews has been born because these magi come from the east and they say, we saw his star way over there. We've come to worship the one born king of the Jews. And of course, Herod orders the slaughter of the innocents, as it's now called, where every baby boy under two years of age is killed just to try to make sure that he gets this rival king dead. And no one takes his throne, okay? But you go on in the story, and now Jesus is not off to a palace in Jerusalem like you'd expect for like the king of kings. He's traipsing back with his parents to like B-town, Nazareth, in Galilee, which even the Jews themselves are like, can anything good come out of 
Galilee, come out of Nazareth, this podunk little backwoods. It's Greeley, okay? Can anything good come out of Greeley? You know? Yes, lots of good things. We agree. But this is how the Denverites view a place like that. And they're like, what rolls in from there? Well, we know it's about to snow, right? Because of the smell. This is how Jews who lived in Judea, this is where Jerusalem is. This is how they look down on that place. And my point is, this is where Jesus grew up. And for the better part of 30 years of his life, he is a carpenter working with his hands, flying completely under the radar. Not what we would expect if God is pulling out all the stops to introduce his king. Well, that brings us to the third point, the life of the king. Well, decades later, the gospels pick up the story of Jesus. And Jesus, again, is not where we would expect him to be. He's not in Judea. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not preaching great sermons and religious leaders are gathered around to soak up like a sponge everything he says. He's actually out in the Judean wilderness looking for one guy named John the Baptist, who, if you've read the story, was an odd fellow in and of himself, like going around in scratchy, furry things and eating locusts and honey. That's his story, okay? And he's preaching and he's baptizing people. But the moment that John the Baptist looks up and sees Jesus, these are his words according to John 1. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the Christ. This is the one I've been telling you about. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And from this point on, when he baptizes Jesus, John the Baptist is going to kind of fade off the scene. In fact, he's going to be imprisoned by Herod. And Jesus' ministry takes off with those words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so we're talking about the life of this king for a moment. So what do you do right after you burst on the scene and someone else is like, son of God, savior of the world, he's the king. He's the one we've waited for. Well, then you got to go, you're the Messiah. So you got to go raise your army. So what does Jesus do? The very next thing Jesus does, according to the gospel of Mark, is he walks along the side of a lake and he calls four fishermen, come and follow me. You're my first four disciples. So you got a Jewish rabbi calling, again, a bunch of nobodies and a bunch of outsiders saying, you're the guys I want. I'm building my kingdom with you. And then he starts preaching good news and he starts healing everyone who comes to him. And needless to say, Orthodox Jews are completely mystified and they're all coming to him saying, okay, Jesus, are you the Messiah or are you not the Messiah? And he'd be like, well, why do you ask that? Well, because you're not doing what we would expect the Messiah to do. You seem pretty cool and all. We like the healing stuff. Your, your preaching is definitely with authority. But, but when's the revolution? This is what they're all thinking. When, when is the military stuff? When are we going to be free of Roman occupation and oppression? And I told you a moment ago that John the Baptist has been imprisoned. John is so mystified by the stories he's hearing in prison of what Jesus is doing. He sends his disciples. We read this in Matthew 11. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? So he's like, are, are we, was I wrong? That day that you came to the Jordan River, was I wrong? And Jesus answers, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. 
Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And that's an interesting statement because he realizes a bunch of the Jews are taking offense. They're like, wait a second, you're the Messiah, you're God's king and you're running around with the likes of tax collectors and fishermen and this crazy zealot and prostitutes and marginalized, and, and you're going in their homes and you're eating with them with unwashed hands. So we're offended, Jesus. And in so many words, Jesus is saying back to John the Baptist, I'm exactly who you think I am. But I'm not going to do what you think I came to do. So this brings us to point four, the arrival of the king. Well, what I mean by the arrival of the king is one Passover, I think the third in Jesus' public ministry and the 33rd of his life, he's headed up to Jerusalem because he is an Orthodox Jew and he kept the, the high feast days. So he's headed up for this greatest of all feasts, which if you don't know, the Passover every year celebrated the Exodus when God delivered the Jewish people out of 400 years of bondage in Egypt. And every year they remembered that and they sacrificed the lamb and the blood and the wine and, and all of the bitter herbs on the table. And it's this great big feast of just like, God, you rescued your people from hundreds of years of bondage. But every year at Passover, the expectation was the same. God, would you do it again? Because look at us. We're subjects of Rome and our entire nation's history has been that we are subjects of one nation or kingdom or another. And so every year there was a heightened expectation of like something's gonna go down at Passover in Jerusalem this year, which is why the first procession I wanna talk to you about for just a second was the procession of Pontius Pilate, the governor over Jerusalem. And every year he lived in Caesarea on the coast, big, nice palace, you know, beachfront home. But every year before the Passover, he would take this procession down to Jerusalem with his chariots, with his armies marching around him, riding on a war horse. And he was there in Jerusalem to say every year, no monkey business on my watch. I will kill you if you try anything. And he often did. So he would erect Roman standards, flags in and around the temple just to say, you people are not in charge here. I'm in charge and nothing's gonna happen on my watch. Well, then comes Jesus. And this is probably the procession you know about on Palm Sunday. And it's, it's funny because, well, I'll, I'll just read for you what Matthew 21 says. Because here comes Jesus and he's not just riding on a donkey. He's riding on a juvenile donkey. So I just picture like his legs, just like this creature's, it's like a Shetland pony, you know? It's like his legs are dragging on the ground and people are shouting, Hosanna, which is like, save now. And what are they expecting? If you're the Messiah, save now. And they mean save us from Rome now. But, but, but feet dragging on the ground and he's not doing anything. And Matthew 21 says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Not a war horse, not prancing, no, no entourage with swords and spears and death. 
Jesus is coming to save, but as you probably know the story, many of you, he's not coming to save Jerusalem or Israel from Rome. He's coming to save people from sin, including and especially the sin of phony and fruitless religion. So over the next few days, Jesus is teaching stories called parables, and he's healing the infirmed, and he's sealing his own fate. Because if you know what's going to happen between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, he's going to tick everybody off. I mean, he's showing hundreds of thousands of Jews who have gathered for Passover in Jerusalem, I am never going to be the militaristic Messiah that you demand. I'm never going to be that character. Okay? And so the masses of people have this growing disillusionment at best. And many of them are just outright angry. Like, we reject you. You have no right to be our Messiah. In fact, we will not call you our Messiah. We're looking for someone else because you're not doing what we wanted you to do. At the same time, he's showing the religious leaders up big time. Okay? And he's showing you guys are the real problem because you don't know how to help people get saved. You talk and talk and talk and you laid burdens on people that they can't bear up under, but you're not bringing anyone into a right relationship with God. So they're super ticked. And many of you know that this week culminates in the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus Christ. Now Pilate, the Roman governor and the religious leaders have this very expedient relationship because Pilate doesn't really care about Jesus. You know, this, this guy who rides the Shetland pony and drags his feet in the dust. Does it, that's not a threat. But he does want to keep the peace on his watch at the high feast. And the Jews want Jesus dead, but they don't have the authority to execute anyone. So they get married and they use each other to each give the other what they want. And in the midst of this week of phony trials and betrayal and all these things that you know happen, I just want to highlight one conversation where Pilate takes his turn interrogating Jesus, saying, you know, why have your people, your people, why have the Jews handed you over to me to kill you? And the conversation goes like this from John 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it about me? Which is kind of cryptic. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, this is what I'm coming to, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And what I point out is, number one, the ambiguity of Jesus' answer, are you the king of the Jews? And the ambiguous answer is to kind of juggle or capture that tension of, yes, I'm the king of the Jews, but not like you want to label me. Not like you're thinking, and not like the Jews are thinking. But then this answer of, my kingdom is not of this world. I don't derive my authority from the people that I govern, it's eternal, it's divine, it's the power of God at work. And you probably know then that after this answer in literally back-to-back -back statements, Pilate is going to say, I find no fault in this man and then sentence him to death by crucifixion. 
And as was the custom, he writes, what is, what is this person's crime for which they're being crucified in the public square? Well, here he writes, the king of the Jews. And he puts it over Jesus' head on a cross after he's been stripped and beaten and flogged and whipped and spat on. And they cover him with a robe, a purple robe, and they put a reed in his hand. Here's your scepter. And then they say, just kidding, give us that scepter. And they take a crown of thorns and they drive it into his skull with the scepter. And the religious leaders come to him and they're like, um, excuse me, I know, it's, I know it's Passover and I know we don't want to ruffle your feathers and all, but... Um, we object to the placard over his head. We wanted to read, he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, I've written what I've written. The king of the Jews. And Pilate probably means that as like, I'm going to mock the king of the Jews. I'm going to show you at Passover how much power and authority I have that I can literally crucify your king and get all of you on board with that. And you're cheering me on. But in a, a divine irony, he's actually saying Jesus' only crime is being who he actually was, the king of the Jews. So we understand the Jews are like, we want the king to come to his capital city and kill his enemies. And Jesus is like, the king will come to his capital city and be killed for his enemies. It's a very paradoxical king. So that brings us to point five, the death of the king Jesus died a curse, a king on a cross. And by the way, the apostle Paul is going to circle back on that one thing and say, the king on the cross, do you understand how scandalous this is to Jews? We're not going to serve him as Messiah. He died on a cross. He was accursed. Gentiles are like, that's folly. That's crazy. Why would you serve a king on a cross? And by the way, I'd invite you, if you're skeptical, if you're exploring the Christian faith, or a friend brought you here, or a spouse brought you here this morning, you're like, why, what's, what's the deal with this whole Christianity thing? Um, you got to explain this, how a Jewish Messiah is crucified, and a billion people in the world subscribe to this religion and are even willing to die for it. This brings us to point six, the return of the king, and actually I want to talk to you about two returns real quick. First of all, and I do ask this question to you. Why, why do any of us, most of us, probably American Gentiles, 2,000 years later, why do we believe in and dare I say worship Jesus of Nazareth? And of course, many of you have given this thought. Well, because a few days after his death and burial, Jesus walked out of his own tomb. Right? He'd come to earth to save us, not from the Romans, but from our own internal problems, heart problems, mind problems, sin problems, death problems, hell problems. And he's saying by walking out of his grave, none of these things have any authority over me. I've defeated sin. I've defeated temptation. I've defeated hell. I've defeated the powers of darkness. I've defeated death itself. So in his first return, which I'm saying is the return from the grave, Jesus is coming and offering simply grace, unmerited favor, free salvation. He's saying, if you simply trust in me that I died for your sins and I rose conquering all of that, you have forgiveness and you have freedom forever as a part of my kingdom. You have peace with God and that's why what Miguel is going to talk about next week, he goes on to say, go tell everyone this good news. 
If you really believe I died and I rose and I conquered everything that could ever defeat you, you should probably go tell other people because it's free. And it, it diminishes you nothing by giving it away and giving it away and giving it away. It just simply brings more people in. But I want, I want us to make no mistake, there is another return of the king. And it still stands in our future and it looks like, it sounds like Revelation 19 verses 11 through 16 where John says, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What is this about? Well, the final return of the king is the return to set everything right. It's the return that says, if you refuse to accept a free gift, if you refuse to honor the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, if in fact you demand to have your own way and destroy the image of God, in yourself, in other people, he says, eventually the time is up. Justice has been delayed so that you may receive mercy and compassion and forgiveness and peace and reconciliation. But there are plenty of people out there, they don't want that peace and reconciliation. They want to do it their own way. And so he says, there's this second coming and in that day, sin and death and hell and all those who array themselves with those things are crushed so that a redeemed people can live free forever. So let me just illustrate that because that, that does not, I know that does not sit well with our culture. So I want you to just imagine you have a little child and your child, the thing closest to your heart is taken from you and killed by a man that you find out this is not the first child that he's kidnapped and killed. It's the 10th, it's the 20th. And every time he gets caught and he goes before a judge and the judge keeps letting him off, how would you feel? Wonderful. I love compassion. I love second chances and fifth chances and tenth chances. No, you'd be like, where is the justice? Why did this judge who had one job to justly condemn and imprison someone so they don't hurt other innocent people and those feelings that you would feel would be righteous feelings. They would be right feelings. They would be just feelings. So the king returns one day and he makes everything right. And he makes everything right in part by saying, you cannot continue to harm my people. You cannot continue to harm my image. And to be just and to be righteous, he imprisons. Okay, well, what is all this signifying? Let me just give you three takeaways real quick in closing or call these gospel applications, okay? Just give them to you. Number one, my takeaway as I read through this, this is the king of God's kingdom. 
I'm like, okay, so give King Jesus your core allegiance. And what I'd love to see established here on this corner and emanating out from this corner of downtown Denver is a, is a community of faith where people look at us and they say, man, they, they are not loyal to a particular political party or a political figure or to like a denomination or traditions that they just bring along with them. They're not loyal to themselves. Like I pledge allegiance to myself and all of my dreams. But it would say functionally, these people are loyal to Jesus. Well, what would that look like? I mean, you know, there's a way to have a social media presence that people realize like you're just loyal to Jesus. Your allegiance belongs to Jesus. So you're not like into conspiracy theories and just talking about crazy stuff about how we got jobbed and we deserve this and these people are terrible over here, but we're awesome over here. And very often what Christians show is like an allegiance to party, an allegiance to like my, my own ideologies. And that's what we're arguing about. That's what we're fighting about. That's what we're all worked up over. And an allegiance to Jesus, I think, in social media, in live interactions with other humans, in your office, at the gym, in your families, extended relatives, when you sit down for those big family dinners, there's shalom, there's peace. You're not all worked up. Because you're like, my allegiance is to Jesus, and guess what? He wins. He's in control, and he's good. And I rest well at night because he gets my loyalty. So give Jesus your core allegiance. Number two, give King Jesus, or let King Jesus set your core agenda. After all, he's king, right? King of kings. So every king has an agenda. They have programs, they have priorities. And I say, encourage at the beginning of this year, still get in the word of God and say, Lord, what are your priorities? What are Jesus' agenda? And we'd say, my agenda is the American dream. I wanna be wealthy, I wanna be prosperous. I wanna have a lot of nice experiences. Jesus doesn't care about your bank account. He's going to take care of, one of, his, one of his priorities is taking care of you. But he doesn't care that that number is this instead of this. Whether you have this much free time instead of that much free time. Jesus wants to make you passionate about the right things. And a community of Jesus followers, how we would be a kingdom outpost representing his priorities, we would say, God, I want to get on board with the Jesus agenda. And then finally, ask King Jesus to shape your core attitudes and affections. And we saw this last week where Jesus used his authority to love and serve other people. And his passions and his compassions were always present so that he was doing the right things with the right energy and the right tone and the right emotion even. That walking paradox of gentleness, humility, mildness, and also blazing zeal for the glory of God, the Father, holiness, true righteousness, justice. So conclusion. I just want you to imagine, what if a community of faith built our faith, our daily lives, our priorities around King Jesus? Now, we're not going to do that perfectly, so we have to be walking in repentance and faith. 
But I want you to just pause with me here at the conclusion of this message, number one of this four-part series, and just pray something like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for being this paradoxically all-powerful and simultaneously good and gracious king. I want you to take my life and transform all of it with all that you are and let my life, let my community of lives be a reflection of yours.